Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the show. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. I've dedicated the last several podcasts to a four-part series on Mary. And last week, we explored how the canon of Scripture formed in the early days of the church. All the while, your questions were piling up in my inbox. So this week, I'd like to address some of the more immediate ones and, frankly, the more difficult ones. By the way, last week, we began our 10-week fall quarter on the Deuterocanonical books. Those seven books plus some additions to Daniel and Esther that appear in Roman Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, but were removed by the 16th century Protestant reformers. Although, until the mid-20th century, Protestant Bibles placed them as an appendix between the Old Testament and the New Testament, calling them the Apocrypha. Martin Luther was the first to do it in his 1534 German translation of Scripture. Although Luther noted in his preface to the Apocrypha that the books are, and I quote, profitable and good to read. So whether we're Roman Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, if we're to be educated readers of Scripture, we need to know about these books and study them along with those books in the Common Canon. This week, in our live classes, we pick up the first of these seven books, the Book of Tobit. Oh, it's a delightful story about a family from the northern kingdom of Israel who was exiled to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, following Assyria's conquest of the northern kingdom in 722 BC. Written some 500 years afterward in the early second century BC, It's truly a great story, and I have to tell you, it is oftentimes uproariously funny, and its lessons are as applicable today as they were when it was written well over 2,000 years ago. So, if you're not enrolled in one of my four live classes, you can sign up for the entire Deuterocanonical course as a remote student by going to logosbiblestudy.com and clicking on Live Classes. The first class listed is for remote students. And I think you'll really like this week's two lessons on Tobit. And as a remote student, you'll have access to the entire 52-page syllabus. I worked really hard on that one. And over a thousand pages of detailed PowerPoint presentations and all 20 audio lessons each one running 45 to 60 minutes each. We'll be building them across this quarter. But now, on to our questions. And here's the first. I've always thought that the book of Genesis, chapter 37, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. But then I heard you say that they didn't. So who did sell Joseph into slavery? Well, that's a very good question. So let's begin by looking at the verses in question. Genesis 37, verses 26 to 29. 
Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So, when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, oh, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers. He said, the boy isn't there. Where can we turn now? The quote is from the New International Version, the NIV translation, which indicates Joseph's brothers pulled him up out of the cistern and sold him. But a quick look at the Hebrew calls that reading into question. In the Hebrew of, he, of chapters 37, verse 26, the brothers do indeed agree to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, and also that the Midianite merchants came along and took him to Egypt. But then ambiguity enters our text. As verse 28 reads, then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now notice that the Hebrew, as I've given it to you in a literal translation, is far more ambiguous than the NIV translation suggests, since they is grammatically a masculine plural in the Hebrew, it can point to Joseph's brothers or to the Midianites. Now, when I had taught this story in the past, I had always thought that the Ishmaelites and the Midianites were interchangeable, the result of two textual traditions merging in the text or to both groups being closely related as sons of Abraham. We read that in Genesis 25, verse 2. If that's the case, then the brothers sell Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites slash Midianites, Reuben not being present when they do, and surprised when he finds out what his brothers had done. But if the Ishmaelites and the Midianites are two different groups of people, the Midianites discover Joseph in the cistern and they sell him to the Ishmaelites, who then take him to Egypt and sell him to Potiphar. And if this is the case, then the brothers know nothing about it until Reuben returns to the cistern and finds Joseph missing. The Hebrew grammar allows for either reading. Now, if we accept the latter reading, then the implications ripple throughout the rest of the story, manifesting themselves in how we understand the brother's guilt regarding Joseph's disappearance and why they cover it up as they do. Joseph's reaction to his brothers when he first meets them, the brother's reaction when they recognize Joseph, and Joseph's struggle to forgive his brothers in the end. 
In the traditional first reading, the brothers' motives are malignant. They want to be rid of Joseph. In the second reading, we witness a prank gone awry. They're going to show him a lesson. They're going to scare the heck out of him. Such ambiguity abounds throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. It's deliberate, I think, and it greatly enriches the text by offering a variety of interpretive possibilities. Frankly, this is a signature of world-class literature, and it's one feature that makes this story and Scripture itself so intriguing and such a joy to read. Well, on to our next question. It concerns Matthew's Gospel when Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 31, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So just what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that won't be forgiven? I'd sure like to know, because if indeed there's a sin that won't be forgiven, I want to know what it is, so I don't do it. Jesus went to the cross bearing our sins, all of them, and paying the penalty for those sins before a holy and righteous God, thus enabling our salvation. And we appropriate who Christ is and what he did by grace through faith. And when we do, we move positionally into the family of God, from the world to the family of God as adopted sons and daughters in the family. Once there, we strive to live a life worthy of our calling, as St. Peter says, by living a life of active love, a life of good works, if you will, a life that makes God proud of us, not ashamed of us. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. But what about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? The Greek word translated blasphemy is blasphemia. To be accurate, the word is not translated, it's simply transliterated, much as the Greek verb baptizo, to dip, is transliterated into baptize. Both words are Greek, Englished. In classical Greek literature, blasphemy refers to abuse of speech in the sense of personal mockery or ridicule. It may refer to overt speech or simply to one's attitude. To understand blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we have to first understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the economy of salvation. Within the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person plays a unique role. In John 14, 16 to 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The word counselor is parakletos, a word 
etymologically defined from para alongside, like paramedic or paralegal, and the verb kaleo, to call. The counselor is called alongside. It's used throughout John's Gospel to describe the Holy Spirit. So thus the Holy Spirit is that one called alongside of us. The word is rarely used in classical Greek, and only John uses it anywhere in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is called alongside humanity for two distinct purposes. Number one, in relation to the world, and number two, in relation to the family of God, the church. In relation to the world, Jesus says, when he, that is, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. That's in John 16, verse 8. That is, in regard to the world, the Holy Spirit will create a sense of conviction regarding the reality of sin, the holiness of God, and the inevitable judgment that must follow. If sin is real, and if God is holy, then God must, by His very nature, judge sin. We are all born into a condition of sin, and we cannot take one step towards salvation until we recognize the need to be saved, until we recognize that stark reality. In relation to the church, the Holy Spirit has two distinct roles. Number one, in regard to the church as a corporate body, the Holy Spirit is to guide, shape, and nurture the church down through the ages. And number two, in regard to individuals within the church, you and me, the Holy Spirit is to take up residence within us as our comforter and to provide talents, gifts, and abilities to be used in the service of the family of God. When Jesus speaks of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he refers to the Holy Spirit's purpose in relation to the world. In the world, the Holy Spirit holds up the mirror of reality so that we might see ourselves as God sees us, fallen, lost, and in desperate need of a Savior. If we respond to the Holy Spirit, and accept that reality, we've taken our first step toward God forgiving our sin and restoring our rightful place in His creation. Conversely, if we respond to the Holy Spirit by mocking, ridiculing, and rejecting His testimony, well, then we stay right where we are, living forever in a fallen world, forever in a condition of sin, forever apart from God. To use an analogy, if I have a fatal illness and my doctor has medicine that will cure it, the medicine won't help me one bit unless I recognize that I have the illness to begin with 
and accept the cure that my doctor offers. In the very same way, we cannot accept the gift of salvation until we recognize that we're in a sinful condition and that God has the cure. If we reject the Holy Spirit's testimony regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment, then our sin cannot be forgiven. Not because God refuses to forgive us, but because we refuse to recognize the condition we're in and accept the cure. So when Jesus says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, he's not commenting on God's failure to respond to us, but on our failure to respond to God. Now, let me turn to the next question. Well, St. Paul married. What, you might say? St. Paul married? That's preposterous. And yet, Father Jerome Murphy O'Connor, professor of New Testament at the École Biblique in Jerusalem and world-class Pauline scholar, thinks that St. Paul may very well have had a wife. Judaism teaches that marriage is the natural, normal state for adults. Unlike in some Christian denominations, refraining from marriage is not considered praiseworthy or holy in Judaism. Rather, it's considered aberrant and unnatural. Indeed, the Talmud teaches that an unmarried man is incomplete, lacking his vashert, his soulmate. In Genesis 2, verse 18, God says of Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone. <laughs> and I'm always struck by that. Adam's out working in the Garden of Eden, lovely day, beautiful garden, everything's perfect. And God's standing, leaning against the tree, watching Adam work. And God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. <laughs> Apparently, Adam was okay with it. He thought, I'll finish up the rose bushes here. I'll go in, have a beer, and watch football game. Life is great. But God said, no, it's not good for the man to be alone. Thus, <laughs> in, in Judaism, the primary motive for marriage is not procreation, but rather companionship and intimacy. Some rabbis in the Talmud urged that a boy marry upon reaching the age of majority. But more commonly, a boy would marry around 18 years old. Although Talmudic study was a valid reason for delaying marriage, young men unmarried after 20 were considered in the Talmud cursed by God. So it's unlikely then that St. Paul, an extremely well-educated young man in his early 30s, a student of the great Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of Paul's century, one being groomed in Jerusalem for leadership at the very highest levels of Judaism, it's highly unlikely he would be unmarried. And yet, that seems to be the case during Paul's later apostolic career. 
When Paul writes his first epistle to the church at Corinth in the winter of A.D. 54, he writes in Acts 7, verse 8, Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay as I am. Yet, other Christian leaders, from St. Peter onward, were married. Paul himself argues in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, that he has the right to take along a believing wife on his missionary journeys, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Peter. But Paul continues that he didn't avail himself of that right. So, what gives with Paul? There are three possible scenarios. First, Paul was married, but he chose not to take his wife along with him on his travels. Since Paul spent the greater part of 30 years on the road, that would be a very long separation, putting Paul's wife in a very difficult position. Jewish law of Paul's day allows for divorce, but only the husband may initiate it, not the wife. If a husband leaves for an extended period of time or if his whereabouts are unknown, his wife becomes an anchored woman. She cannot divorce, nor can she remarry. In a patriarchal culture, such a position would deprive her not only of companionship, but also financial support as well. Now this most often happened if a wife's husband died or went missing in a distant land and word of his fate failed to get back to his family. Although not a Jewish example, this is Penelope's position in the Odyssey. When Odysseus goes to war in Troy, and doesn't return home for 20 years. Not knowing if Odysseus is dead or alive, Penelope is courted by hordes of suitors, but she's not free to marry any of them. A second scenario may be that after St. Paul's conversion and his subsequent deep involvement in missionary work, his wife left him. And this may be what lies behind Paul's comment in Philippians 3, verse 8, when he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And perhaps it explains Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 7, 12-15. Part one of Paul's advice reflects precisely Jesus' strict position on divorce in Matthew 19, 3-9, while part two states Paul's position regarding an unbelieving spouse who leaves her husband. He writes, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried 
or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now that's the Lord, not Paul. Now here's Paul. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him or her do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Significantly, St. Paul prefaces his position by emphasizing that it's his position, not the Lord's. This is referred to as the Pauline privilege in Roman Catholic canon law, and it permits divorce if neither partner had been baptized at the time of their marriage, one partner becomes a baptized Christian during the marriage, and the other partner leaves the marriage as a result. In such a case, the divorced, baptized partner is free to marry again. The Pauline privilege differs from annulment in that the Pauline privilege dissolves a marriage, whereas an annulment declares the marriage was invalid from the start. So if Paul's unbelieving wife had left him because of his faith in Christ, in St. Paul's view, he would be free of the marriage and able to marry again, should he choose to do so. A third scenario may be that St. Paul had been married, but his wife died, perhaps during childbirth, and had left him a widower, a rather common occurrence in biblical times. Frankly, I rather like this alternative, for it would explain much about Paul's elevated and indeed romantic view of marriage. He writes in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands ought to be willing to die for their wives. And if Paul's wife died during childbirth, and the child died as well. In my mind, it explains much about Paul's relationship with his young protege, Timothy, whom he addresses as Timothy, my dear son. Well, any discussion about Paul's marital status cannot overlook Lydia a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, whom Paul personally baptizes, and the woman with whom St. Paul stays while in Philippi. F.F. F. Bruce, in his great biography, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, first published in 1977, dismisses out of hand the, quote, romantic fantasy that Paul married Lydia, the tradesman of Philippi, and that she is the true yoke fellow mentioned in Philippians 4, verse 3. Now, I'm not willing to make the leap 
and say that St. Paul married Lydia, but certainly he was very fond of her. She is, after all, quite an extraordinary woman. She has a large home in Philippi, large enough to host Paul, Luke, Silas, and Timothy for a rather extended period of time. She's a successful businesswoman, importing cloth from Thyatira to Philippi. She is a spiritual leader for other women in Philippi. She is a pillar in the church at Philippi. And as far as we can tell, Lydia appears not to be married. In AD 57, on Paul's return from his third missionary journey, he travels through Macedonia with Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. But Paul stays on at Philippi for Passover while the others go ahead to Troas, where five days after Passover, Paul joins them. Presumably, St. Paul stays at Lydia's for the holiday. Well, none of this, of course, proves that Paul had a romantic relationship with Lydia. Nor does it prove that Paul was ever married. But it does open the door to intriguing speculation. Why, I wouldn't be surprised at all if when we get to heaven, we'll see St. Paul and Lydia walking down the street hand in hand, <laughs> both wearing purple cloth, I'll bet. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Stay tuned for next week. In the meantime, sign up for the Paul Quarter course on the Deuterocanonical books and this week's lessons on Tobit. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.